morning. Please turn in your copy of God's Word to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. We are currently in a sermon series titled Life and Hope in the Spirit, a Spiritual Diagnosis. We are walking through what many theologians call the greatest chapter in all the Bible, Romans chapter 8. As we walk through this great chapter, we want to allow the scriptures to examine our spiritual health so that we might be strengthened in our faith. Today we'll be looking at Romans 8, verse 5 to 11. Here the Apostle Paul will show us fruit that marks a Christian. Fruit that marks a Christian's life. So let's now turn our attention to Romans 8, and we'll start in verse 1. Here now the words of Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, For it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask for the Spirit's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for condemning your son on the cross so that we might no longer be under condemnation. We thank you that you have given us the gracious gift of the Holy Spirit, that you have not left us to ourselves, but you've given us the spirit of life, the one who unites us to Christ, the one who assures our hearts, convicts us of sin, strengthens our faith, and empowers our obedience. Lord, we ask now that your spirit will reveal the true state of our hearts. Lord, we ask that you'll reassure our weak faith. Lord, we ask that those who remain in unbelief, that you'll convict them of their sin and cause them to be born again. Lord, we ask that your spirit will help us in our weakness. We ask that your spirit will illuminate our minds and that you'll plant your holy word deep in our hearts. Cause our weary and weak eyes to behold the glory of your Son in the Scriptures. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. 
how do I know that I'm really saved? This is a question that has plagued many in their Christian walk. Now, maybe you are a newer Christian, and you start to recognize sins that you never knew were there. And you begin to question, are you really converted? Or maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, but there's that particular sin that clings closely, and you're discouraged by that constant battle, and you begin to doubt your salvation. Or maybe you're in this room, and you're actually not a Christian, but you think you're a Christian because you do Christian things. You come to church, you read your Bible, and pray. Friends, regardless where you find yourself this morning, I think all of us can, can uh, remember a time when we've wrestled with this question. How do I know that I'm really saved? How do I know that I'm really saved? Friends, this is the matter of Christian assurance. And this is what the Apostle Paul seeks to address in our passage this morning. In Romans 8, verse 1 to 4, Paul explains the basis or grounds of our salvation. Here in verse 5 to 11, he goes on to show the fruit of our salvation, the evidence that we are indeed saved. What things do you see in a person who's been freed from the law? Think back to the example of the courtroom. The work of Christ is the evidence that is presented before God on our behalf. The God, the holy judge, declares us not guilty on the basis of Christ and his work. But there's another type of evidence. This is the evidence that we, pre we present outside the courtroom in our lives. Our lives are a testimony of God's work in us. Friends, if you are free from the guilt and power of the law, you will live like it. You will live like a freed man. Friends, God has given us the gift of the Spirit. He's given us a spiritual mind so that we might bear fruit of the Spirit. And this is what we'll see in our passage. So in Romans 8, 5 to 11, the Apostle Paul gives us four assurances. Four assurances that are evident in the Christian's life, that are evident in the spiritually minded. First, the spiritually minded walks in obedience. The spiritually minded walks in obedience. We see this in verse 4, but look back again at verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now this clause, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, modifies the one preceding it. In particular, it further, further explains that word us. Who is that us in verse 4? Who are those who, who fulfill the righteous requirements of the law? It's those who walk according to the Spirit. Last week, we concluded our time by explaining how this phrase refers to our obedience. Remember the logic of verse 1 to 4. The Spirit has set us free from the condemnation of sin by uniting us to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christ was condemned for our sin under the law so that we might receive Christ's righteous life. 
This is the glorious doctrine of double imputation. Our sin was imputed to Christ so that his righteous life might be imputed to us. And this is why Christ died. Did you see that in verse 4, that purpose statement? God condemned Christ in the flesh in order that, or so that, the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, so that we can obey the law as we walk according to the Spirit. Friends, we are saved from the condemnation of the law by faith in Christ alone. But we also walk in obedience to the law by faith in his righteous life. This is what Paul calls the obedience of faith. And as we walk in faith in Christ, we fulfill that royal law, that law of love we talked about last week. Remember Romans 13, verse 8. Owe no one except anything to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Those who love one another by faith in Christ fulfill the law. This is what it means to walk in obedience to all of Christ's commands. So this is where we ended last week. But what I want you to notice this week is that contrast in verse 4. Did you notice it in verse 4? Look again. Paul says, We are those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. We walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Paul is contrasting walking in the flesh with walking in the Spirit. Here he's using a grammatical device that denies the first phrase, not in the flesh, in order to reinforce the second phrase, according to the Spirit. This is for emphasis. This is for us to know that without a shadow of a doubt, if you are in Christ, if you are no longer un under condemnation, you walk according to the Spirit and the Spirit alone. You can only walk according to the flesh, Paul says, and that's the domain of our sinful nature, or you can walk according to the Spirit. That's the domain or the rule of the Spirit. Friends, you can't walk according to the Spirit on Sunday and then on Monday decide, you know what? I'm going to give the Spirit a rest today. Let me walk according to the flesh. No, it's impossible. You're either in the flesh and walk according to the flesh, or in the Spirit and walk according to the Spirit. Now, this is reinforced by that word walk. This word walk. This word walk does not mean just like walking in a park, like a one-time act. Rather, this word here means, means a manner of life. It's a way of life, a way of living, a way that marks your life. As that wonderful track explains, there is only two ways to live. There's only two ways to live. Only the person who is in Christ walks according to the Spirit. Friends, this is what it means to be a Christian. You do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And this is consistent with Paul's overall argument. Remember what he, he has been saying in chapter 7 and chapter 8. In your sinful flesh, chapter 7, you cannot obey the law. You are under the law, and because of sin, 
you are unable to obey it. You stand condemned. But in the Spirit, chapter 8, you are free from the condemnation of the law and can obey the law through the Spirit who enables you. He enables your walk of faith. So the spiritually-minded person walks in obedience to faith. The, the walks in obedience through faith. And as we walk in obedience through faith, we fulfill this law of love. But you might be asking, how does this help my assurance? How does this help me when I'm doubting whether I'm Christian or not? Friends, you need to examine your life. Examine the fruit of your life. If you walk according to the flesh, your life will produce fruits of unrighteousness. You will not obey God's word. You will not trust in his promises. You will not even desire to grow. But if you walk according to the Spirit, you will gladly and joyfully obey God's word. His commands to you are no longer burdensome because of the Spirit. When you become a Christian, there's a fundamental change in how you live. Your manner of life will start to look like Christ. Not, not perfectly, but consistently. You will bear good fruit. Remember, this is what Jesus says. Every tree is known by its fruit. An apple tree does not produce oranges. It only produces apples. In the same way, if you are of the Spirit, you will walk in obedience and produce fruits of righteousness. And if you're in Christ, you will continue to grow progressively more and more into the likeness of Christ. Friends, obedience to Christ is not how we are saved, but is fruit that we indeed are saved. It is evidence that you belong to Christ. Now, just like a doctor examines the symptoms of a patient, let's now examine our hearts from the scriptures. Let's let God's word help us see whether we are in the flesh or in the spirit. So turn with me to Galatians 5. Galatians 5, verse 16. Here we get a wonderful contrast of what it looks like to be in the flesh. Paul says here that the works of the flesh are evident. They're clear. You can see them. Or the works of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. Friends, this is a wonderful passage to read, to sit down with a brother or sister and examine your life. So as we, as we read this, I want you to honestly assess your life. Which one describes you best? Fruits of the flesh or fruits of the Spirit? Galatians 5, we're going to start in verse 19. Galatians 5, verse 19. Paul says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things 
will not inherit the kingdom of God. Whereas John says in 1 John, those who practice such things or continue in such things. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. If you want a good book to read about the fruits of the Spirit, there's a book called Character Matters. I highly recommend it. Uh, The author walks through each fruit of the Spirit and helps you examine your life. Friends, which one of these mark your life? Are you of the flesh? Is your life dominated by sexual morality and sensuality and enmity and strife and jealousy? If someone was to take a temperature gauge of your life, is it full of these things? Or is your life reflecting the fruits of the Spirit? Do you see love? Love for God and love for neighbor. Joy peace, patience, kindness? Do you see these marks or evidences of the Spirit in your life? Friends, one of the ways you can examine your life is to look back over the past month, look, past, look back over the past year, or even go back all the way to your conversion. Think about the sins that enslaved you before you were in Christ, and ask yourself, Am I still enslaved by those same sins in the same intensity, in the same frequency? For instance, think about that first sin Paul mentions, sexual morality. Is your life marred by sexual sin? Adultery? Pornography? Lust? Or do you see evidences of grace in your life? Are you growing in self-control? Are you growing consistently zealously and joyfully repenting and believing in the gospel? Are you growing in fruits of the Spirit? Do you see evidences of growth and victory over that sin? Are you increasingly gentle towards others as you discipline your children or rebuke another member? Are you increasing in joy as you worship God and serve? Are you increasing in love and a desire to build up others? One of my favorite verses about loving others is found in Philippians 1.6. Listen to how Paul speaks of the church in Philippi. He says this, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace. Beloved, do you hold one another in your hearts? Not because of what they can do for you, not because of how they can serve you or how they make you feel, but because they are partakers of grace, because they belong to Christ, because they are a member of Christ's body. Friends, if you are in Christ, you will walk increasingly in obedience and love. If you want some more diagnostic questions, I want to recommend this book by Don Whitney. It's called, How Can I Be Sure I'm a Christian? How Can I Be Sure I'm a Christian? And we have a couple books to hand out. We have four. 
So if you're willing to read this, maybe read it with another brother or sister, then raise your hand, and we have some brothers who will hand out a couple copies. Listen to a couple more questions, application questions, that Don Whitney gives to examine your life. Is your obedience rooted in faith? Do you sacrificially love other Christians? Do you long to be made more like Christ? Do you habitually, that's regularly, do what is right, that is obey God's word more and sin less? So those are some good questions to ask yourself as we examine our life. So first, the spiritually minded person walks in obedience. But second, the spiritually minded person sets their mind on things above. Look again at verse 4. Look again at verse 4. Paul says, We are those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Christians set their minds on the things of the Spirit, or things above. Here in verse 5, the Apostle Paul continues the contrast between the flesh and the Spirit. So in verse 4, he says you either walk in the flesh or walk in the Spirit. But now he's saying you either have the mind of the flesh or the mind of the Spirit. And that word for tells us how verse 4 and 5 are related. Do you notice that word at the beginning of verse 5? Verse 5 is the grounds or the reason for how we walk. The reason you walk by the Spirit is because you have the mind of the Spirit. Or the reason you walk according to the flesh is because you have the mind of the flesh. And just like we saw in the first point, you cannot have either mind. You have either a walk in the flesh or a walk in the Spirit, or you have a mind in the flesh or a mind in the Spirit. You can't have the mind of flesh at 10 p.m. on Saturday night, as you're watching that movie, you shouldn't watch, and then have the mind of the Spirit at 10 a.m. on Sunday morning, because we're here at church. No, you either have the mind of Christ, the mind of the Spirit, or the mind of flesh. Now, you might be thinking, wait, don't we wage war with our minds? Don't we wage war against our sinful flesh? Yes, but that's not this week. Paul will get there next week. Here, Paul is describing two states of minds, and you can only belong one to one or the other. Now, what does it mean to set our minds? That, that verb he uses, to set our minds. Well, it's a present active verb, and it can mean to think upon, to think upon. Now, the present tense in the Greek refers to an ongoing action. So this isn't a one-time act. I think about the Spirit. Okay, I'm done. Think about the flesh. Okay. No, this is an ongoing act. This is something you do consistently, constantly, and actively. You actively set your mind either on the flesh or actively set your mind on the Spirit. This is not something you're passive in. This is something you actively do. So you either constantly, consistently, and actively think upon the things of the flesh, or if you're a Christian, 
you constantly, consistently, and actively think upon the things of the Spirit. That's what it means to be a Christian. Friends, which one describes your thought life? Let's examine our minds. Let's think about what does it look like to have the mind of the flesh, and let's think about what it looks like to have the mind of the Spirit. First, think about the mind of the flesh. What does it mean to set our minds on the things of the flesh? Well, Paul, at the beginning of his letter to the Romans, describes our sinful state in the flesh. He tells that all of us were born in sin, and all of us inherited a sinful mind. All of us were born with the mind of the flesh. And listen to how Paul describes that sinful state in Romans 1, verse 21 to 23. Paul says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Friends, when you are born with a sinful nature, you are futile in your thinking. You are foolish in your thinking. You claim to be wise, but you are indeed a fool. And the reason, the root reason, is because you exchange the glory of God, the creator of all things, for creation. Not just for yourself, but for birds and animals and creeping things. This is called idolatry. You worship everything other than God. You worship everything other than God. Your mind is hostile towards God, as we'll see in verse 7. Your mind does not submit to God. Your mind is darkened, it's depraved, it's unable to see the glory of God and respond with worship. The things of God are detestable to you, but the things of the flesh, oh, they look good. They look pleasing. They look worthy of worship. Friend, the person who sets their mind on the things of the flesh ultimately puts themselves their desires, their wants, and their minds at the heart of their lives. They set their minds on anything and everything except God. You wake up, eat, drink, go to work, play, and go to bed without ever acknowledging God or thinking upon Him. He is completely absent from your life. And if you're honest, you really don't care. Because what, what can God do for you? How can he serve your purposes? You see, ultimately, you think about yourself. You worship at the throne of your mind and your desires. You want, you lust, you covet, you think, you complain, you fantasize, you imagine, you ponder, you scheme, you plan, all to fulfill the desires of your heart. This is what it means to be, to set your mind according to the flesh. But friends, if you are in Christ, you do not have this mind that no longer describes you. 
You have the mind of Christ. You are no longer at the center of your life, but you submit all of your life, your thoughts, your desires, your plans to God. His ways become your ways. His delights become your delights. His mind becomes your mind. This is the mind of Christ. Listen to what Jesus told his disciples in John 14, verse 25. As we think about the things of the Spirit, what are these things of the Spirit? Jesus says in John 14 to the disciples, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Beloved, this is the main ministry of the Holy Spirit. He does not work apart from God the Father and God the Son. He works in harmony. He takes the work of Christ and the words of Christ and he applies them to our hearts. So we look ultimately to the scriptures. We know that the scriptures are the final, the sufficient, and the full revelation of Jesus Christ. We see that in Luke 24, verse 44 to 47. All the scriptures are the testimony of Jesus Christ. His life and his work is here where we have the gospel message, the good news of salvation. So when Paul says that we think, we set our minds on the things of the Spirit, we set our minds on this book, the things of God as revealed in the Bible. Friends, if you want to think God's thoughts, then you read your Bible. You set your mind on the things of the Spirit by constantly, consistently, and actively reading the Scriptures. It is God's Word that transforms our minds and enables us to think in His ways. It's the Scriptures that expose areas of cultural thinking, or worldly thinking, or wrong thinking, or fleshly thinking, and corrects our minds, conforms our minds, convicts us of sin, and brings us into conformity with Christ. It is the scriptures that ultimately point us to the one and only thing that you and I need most. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Friends, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. This is what we do when we read the scriptures by faith. This is what we do when we turn our weary hearts and distracted minds and look upon the glory of Christ in the word. Friends, if you're anything like me, I can get so easily distracted from the glories of Christ, the joys of knowing God as my Father, and the sure hope of eternal life. We need regular and consistent reminders of who we really are and how we are to live. Friends, we set our minds on things above, where Christ is seated as we read the word of God. 
Friends, we must examine our thought life. Which one describes your minds? What do you spend the most time thinking about? Yourself and the desires of the flesh? Or the things of God and the scriptures? Ask yourself, what is dominating your mind? Are you spending more time watching YouTube than reading God's word? Friends, some of us struggle to fight sin because we spend so little time thinking and meditating on God's word. We allow our culture to shape our minds. Friends, we need to daily put on the mind of Christ. So first, we see that the spiritual-minded person walks in obedience. And second, they set their minds on things above. Third, Paul says that the spiritual-minded person has peace with God. The spiritual-minded person has peace with God. We see this in verse 6 to 9. First, look at verse 6. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Here, Paul is drawing out the consequences of each mindset. If you are in the spirit and set your mind on the things of the spirit, you have life and peace. But if you set your mind on the things of the flesh, whether you realize it or not, you will die. You are under God's judgment. Now, Paul proceeds to explain these two realities in verse 7 to 11. First, he describes why the mind that is set in the flesh leads to death in verse 7 to 8. And then he contrasts it with the mind that is set on the, on the spirit that leads to life in verse 9 to 11. So first, we're going to look at the mind that leads to death in verse 6 to 8. So look again at verse 6. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The reason that the mind set on the flesh leads to death is because it is at enmity with God. It is hostile to God. It is at war with God. Think about what that word hostile means. For instance, think about Ukraine and Russia who are hostile against one another. Just think about the carnage of war. Paul says that the mind of the flesh is hostile or at war with God. Now, friends, this is a frightful place to be. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. I mean, just, just think about it. We are afraid by rumors of wars or threats of peace here. So think about a couple years ago when Iran was threatening war with the United States after the United States killed Soleimani. Or think about recently when there's some drone strikes. The threat of war, or the threat, it threatens our peace, makes us nervous, makes us afraid. I mean, just imagine if you were living in Ukraine as Russia invaded. How would you feel? But friends, that pales in comparison 
to being at enmity with God. Friends, who can stand against God? He is the creator of the ends of the earth. He created you, he sustains you, and he could take you out whenever he pleases. Friends, it's only his patience and kindness that allows you to take one more breath in your rebellion. Whether you realize it or not, if you have a mind set on the flesh, you are hostile to God, you are at war with God, and you deserve his judgment. And the reason that you are hostile to God is because of your sin. It's because of your sin. Did you see that in verse 7 and 8? He says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to, to, to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. The mind of flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit to God. It refuses to obey God's word. This is the rebellion that was started back way in the Garden of Eden. Remember, God commanded Adam and Eve, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what did they do? They rejected the word of God. They rebelled against his rule and plunged all of humanity in this rebellion. Friends, each sin you commit is not just a mistake. It's not just a slip-up, but it's high-handed treason against God. You are unwilling or unable to submit to his commands. You submit to your flesh. You submit to your desires. You submit to your kingdom. You refuse to listen to God and to obey him. In fact... Even if you wanted to, in the flesh, you cannot obey him. Did you notice that in verse 7? You are not able to obey him. This is what Paul has been talking about in Romans 7. This is what we talked about last week. Because you're enslaved to your sin, to the passions of the, your sinful desires, you are unable to obey God. You are enslaved to your sin. You cannot obey God's word. And you cannot please him. And if you continue in your sin, my friends, it will lead you all the way to eternal death and hell. All of sin, listen to me, all of sin promises life, pleasure, satisfaction, happiness, your best life now but it only can deliver death. It promises life, it promises pleasure, but it leads to death. Think about how Solomon warns his sons in Proverbs 5. Listen to his warning to his son. Proverbs 5, verse 1 to 6. He says, My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion. And your lips may guard knowledge, for the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey. It looks pleasing. It looks good. And her speech is smoother than oil. Sounds good. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her step follows the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. 
her ways wander, and she does not know it. And everyone who follows her goes with her down to Sheol in death. Sin promises life. It looks good. It looks pleasing. It looks like it will satisfy something, some need you have. Whether it's a physical need, whether it's for hunger, or pleasure, or sex, or comfort, or affirmation. It promises life. It promises what looks good, but friends will lead to, straight to the pit of hell. Friends, if you set your mind on the flesh, you will die. Your sins will eventually lead you to death. It might not happen today, but as Paul explains in Romans 2, as you continue in your sin, you are storing up wrath for the day of judgment. And on that final day, God will pour out all of his righteous judgment upon you. This is the state of the mind in the flesh. The mind that is set upon the flesh. Friends, you need a new mind. A new mind that hates your sin and loves God. You need to be born again. You need your old heart to be replaced with a new heart. Think about what we, we read in Ezekiel 36, that scripture passage that Chris read earlier. Ezekiel promises a day when the Spirit of God will take stony hearts that are stuck in rebellion, that hate God, that deserve God's judgment, and replace it with a new heart, a new mind that loves God, and obeys his commands. Friends, you need to be born again. If you, it is only at the cross where rebels are pardoned and sinners are forgiven. Friends, it's only at the cross where you can have peace with God. Friends, if you are not a Christian, if you're not a Christian, you need to know that you stand in hostility to God. You stand under his wrath, and you will receive the full payment of your rebellion in hell. But God offers peace through the cross of Christ. Jesus was condemned on that cross so that rebels like you might be forgiven. He bore the condemnation of your sin, conquered your sin, and rose again. He now offers forgiveness and eternal life. He now offers you the spirit that is able to regenerate you. He offers his spirit that can cause you to trust and obey. To trust and obey. There is no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. Friends, turn away from your sin. That's what it means to have a change of mind. Turn away from your sin and turn to Christ alone. He alone can give you the peace you need. He alone can give you the spirit you need. He alone can cause you to be born again and give you the free offer of eternal life with God. You need to be born again. Now, friends, if you are in Christ, you need to know that your standing is at peace with God. You are no longer hostile to God, but you are at peace with him through Christ. And as Paul explains in verse 9, you who are in Christ, you're no longer in the flesh, you're in the spirit. 
You're no longer under condemnation, but under grace. You're no longer under hostility, under the hostile, hostility of the mind, but under the Spirit. You have a new mind, a new heart that delights in God's word, that loves his commands, that loves God and loves his people. Friends, if you are in Christ, you are able to overcome your sin. You are able to overcome your sin and please God. Not by your own strength, but by trusting in the victory of Jesus Christ. The one who died for your sin and the one who rose, conquering your sin. Friends, if you're in Christ, you have victory over every sin and temptation that comes your way. You can please God. You can obey him. This is because you have the very spirit of God. The spirit who rose Christ from the dead dwells in you. We are able to obey and please him because of the spirits Christ has given us. Friends, I fear that many of us, when we're caught in sin, think that we need to do something to atone for our sins or to please God, as we talked about last week. But do you know what pleases God? Do you know what the mind of Christ looks like? The mind of the flesh wants to build up their own altars and try to achieve righteousness and try to please God on their own. What does the mind of the Spirit do? Repents and trusts in Christ. Think about Psalm 51. Think about David after he committed adultery, after he committed murder. What does he do? He confesses his sin to the Lord. Listen to what he says. He says, you will not delight in sacrifice or I'll give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God, this is what pleases God, are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. God is pleased with you, not when you cover up your sin, but when you expose it. God is pleased with you, not when you are hardened in your sin, but when you're convicted of your sin and you come to God in repentance and faith. Confession and repentance is an evidence of grace in your life. Sinners who have the mind of flesh do not repent. They do not confess. They do not feel guilty. But if you are in Christ, you now have the Spirit. Friends, later today, we have the privilege to participate in the Lord's Supper. This is a wonderful opportunity to examine our lives, to turn from any sin that you're holding on to, and come again and receive the gracious pardon of Christ. Do not remain in your sin, but repent today and trust in Christ. Finally, we see that the spiritual-minded person has a sure guarantee. The spiritual-minded person has a sure guarantee. Look again at verse 9. <clears throat> it says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. The spirit who, uh, the, if the Spirit of him 
who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now notice, did you notice these repetitive conditions? These if clauses? He says, if the spirit of God dwells in you, verse 9. If Christ is in you, verse 10. If the spirit of God or spirit of Christ dwells in you, verse 11. Friends, these are real conditions. These are real conditions that must be met. And what is that one condition that meets them all? The Spirit of God dwells in you. The Spirit of God is in you. If you have the Spirit, this is what Paul has been laboring the entire time. As Tom Schreiner explains, Paul summons the readers to consider whether the Spirit indwells them, wanting them to draw the conclusion that he does. Because if you have, if you walk by the Spirit and you have the mind of the Spirit, that means you have the Spirit. That is the point. That is the point. You have the very Spirit of God. He dwells in you or makes permanent residence in you, Christian. The Spirit of God who created all things, the Spirit of God who sustains all things, lives in you. He lives in you. He is the guarantee of our assurance. He is the guarantee that we will have a mind of Christ. He is the guarantee that we will walk in obedience. And he is the guarantee that we belong to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Did you notice that in verse 9? Look again at verse 9. Paul says, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to Christ. So if you do not have the spirit, you do not belong to Christ. They go hand in hand. But if you have the spirit, on the other hand, who do you belong to? If you have the spirit, you belong to Christ. The reason that spirit makes his home in us has nothing to do with us. You do not own the Holy Spirit. He does not come to your beck and call. No. God gives us the Spirit because we belong to Christ. Christ, when he rose from the dead, poured out the Spirit of God as a gift to you, Christian. As a gift and a guarantee that you belong to him. That you are in him. That you are united to his death and resurrection. But that's not all the Spirit guarantees. The Spirit also guarantees your eternal life. The Spirit guarantees that you belong to Christ, but the Spirit also guarantees your eternal life. We see this in verse 10 and 11. In verse 10 and 11, it seems that Paul's speaking of the same thing, the resurrection of Christ from the dead and our final victory over the grave. He's talking about that eschatological day when Christ returns and raises us from the dead. First look at verse 10. Paul says that even though our bodies are dead, the spirit is life. Looking at verse 10. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Now, this word body is different than the flesh. 
He's been using one word to describe a sinful flesh. Here he's using another word to describe your physical body. Or as we see in verse 11, your mortal body. He's talking about your physical body. So he says, your body is under death. Your body is dead because of sin. He's talking about the curse. All of us will die because of sin. All of us were born in sin, and all of us will physically die. There's no one in this room who will not physically die unless Christ returns. So our bodies, in a sense, are dead because of sin. But the spirit of life, he's the spirit of life, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Sin leads to death, but the righteousness of the spirit leads to life and peace. Even though your body will die, Christian, the spirit of life reigns in you. He dwells in you. So you no longer belong to death, you belong to life. You no longer belong to death, you belong to life. And you have a guarantee that one day your mortal bodies will be raised from the dead. Look again at verse 11. He says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. If the spirit of him who rose Christ from the dead dwells in you, he will raise you from the grave. Death has no victory over you. If the spirit who raised Christ from the dead lives in you, he is the guarantee of that final resurrection. As Tom Schreiner rightly concludes, since we are united to Christ, what was true of him is also true of us. Since he was raised, we will also certainly be raised. We will be raised from the dead. And the spirit who rose Christ from the dead is your guarantee. He is the guarantee that you will one day rise bodily from the dead and see God face to face. All of the blessings of Christ belong to you because of the Spirit. They belong to you now. The Spirit is a seal of that guarantee. He is the guarantee of that final resurrection. But He also brings all the blessings of the resurrected Christ to you now. We can enjoy eternal life as we hope in the day of our resurrection. The Spirit who rose Christ from the dead is our guarantee that one day, though you die, yet you will live. The Spirit of God is our most blessed assurance that Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Hair of salvation, purchase of God, born of a spirit, washed in his blood. Friends, this is your story, and this is your hope if you belong to Christ. Let's pray. Righteous Father, we thank you for raising Jesus Christ from the dead. We thank you for giving us the gift of your spirits. Lord, we ask that you would allow, you would not allow us to leave this room without dealing with you that anyone who has a false assurance of salvation or anyone who is not in Christ 
would repent today and trust in you. We pray that you would help us to rightly assess our lives and be strengthened in faith. Help us to walk in power and the help of your spirits. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.